Welcome to episode 128 of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week we are looking at X-Files Fight the Future, the first feature film. Fight the Future was a tagline. It wasn't the official title, it was just The X-Files, as far as the legal definition is concerned, but fans often use Fight the Future to distinguish it from the rest because it was such a pervasive tagline to promote the film. It was originally released on June 19, 1998. The IMDb user score has risen from 6.8 to 7.0 out of 10. Although the movies in general do worse than TV series, because the people who rate TV series on an episode-by-episode basis are skewed toward the crowd that enjoy it. The action takes place in Texas, Washington, and a few other areas. For the plot summary, I'm just going to read the summary from Wikipedia, so it's a little more detailed and longer than usual. The film opens in 35,000 BC in what will become North Texas. Two cavemen hunters encounter a large extraterrestrial life form in a cave, which kills one and infects the other with a black oil-like substance. In 1998, in the same area, a boy falls into a hole and is also infected by a black substance which seeps from the ground. Firefighters who enter the hole to rescue him do not come out. A team of men wearing hazmat suits arrive and extract the bodies of the boy and the firefighters. Meanwhile, FBI Special Agents Fox Mulder and Dana Scully, while investigating a bomb threat against a federal building in Dallas, discover the bomb is in a building across the street. As the building is evacuated, Special Agent in Charge Darius Michaud remains, ostensibly to disarm the bomb. However, he simply waits for the bomb to detonate. Mulder and Scully are later chastised because, in addition to Michaud, four other people were in the building during the bombing. That evening, Mulder is accosted by a paranoid doctor, Alvin Kurtzweil, who explains that the victims were already dead, and that the bombing was staged to cover up how they died. At the hospital morgue, Scully is able to examine one of the victims, finding evidence of an alien virus. Meanwhile, the cigarette-smoking man goes to Texas, where Dr. Ben Braunschweig shows him one of the lost firefighters, who was killed an alien organism residing inside his body. He orders Braunschweig to administer a vaccine to it, but to burn the body if it fails. Later, the alien organism unexpectedly gestates and kills Braunschweig. Mulder and Scully travel to the crime scene in Texas, encountering a boy whose friend fell into the hole. Following the direction, they discover a large cornfield surrounding two glowing domes. Inside the domes, grates in the floor open and swarms of bees fly out. The agents flee, chased by black helicopters, but manage to escape. After returning to Washington, D.C., Scully attends a performance hearing, after which she is transferred. Mulder is devastated to lose his partner. The two are about to share a kiss when Scully is stung by a bee which had lodged itself under her shirt collar, and she quickly loses consciousness. Mulder calls paramedics, but the driver of the ambulance shoots Mulder and whisks Scully away. Mulder, not severely injured, slips out of hospital with the help of the lone gunman and FBI assistant director Walter Skinner. He then meets a former adversary, the well-manicured man, who gives him Scully's location along with a vaccine against the virus that has infected her. As Mulder leaves, the well-manicured man kills himself in a car bomb before his betrayal of the syndicate is discovered. Mulder finds Scully underground in Antarctica, in a large facility containing many humans in ice-like enclosures. He breaks Scully's confinement and uses the vaccine to revive her, but this disrupts the facility and cocooned aliens begin trying to escape. Just after the agents escape to the surface, a huge alien vessel emerges from beneath the ice and travels into the sky. 
Mulder watches it disappear into the distance as Scully regains consciousness. Some time later, Scully attends a hearing where her testimony is disregarded and the evidence is covered up. She hands over the only remaining proof of their ordeal, the bee that stung her, noting that the FBI is not currently capable of investigating this evidence. Outside, Mulder reads an article that has covered up the domes in Cropfield in Texas. Scully informs Mulder that she is willing to continue working with him. At another crop outpost in Tunisia, the cigarette-smoking man warns Strughold that Mulder remains a threat as he explains what Mulder has found out about the virus. He then hands him a telegram revealing that the X-Files unit has been reopened. So the plot for this film was done in conjunction by Chris Carter and Frank Spontnitz. And Chris Carter wrote the screenplay, and it was directed by Rob Bowman. Now aside from those big names, the cast and crew in general were disappointed that the Vancouver crew couldn't do the film. Logistically, it was necessary to do the film in Los Angeles, so they used a local LA crew. But Bowman did say that it wasn't the same as working with a crew that had invested themselves in this property for five years. I mean, these people were often fans who appreciated working on something like The X-Files, but it's not the same as someone who's been there from the beginning and helped make it the phenomenon it was. The cast includes David Duchovny, Gillian Anderson, John Neville, William B. Davis, Mitch Pileggi, Dean Haglund, Bruce Harwood, Tom Braidwood, and Don S. Williams, all reprising their recurring roles, as well as a few guest stars. So we've got Martin Landau as Kurtzweil. The IMDb says he's best known for Ed Wood, where he won the Oscar for playing Bela Lugosi. Crimes and Misdemeanors, where he was nominated for an Oscar. Tucker, A Man in His Dream, where he was also nominated for an Oscar, and North by Northwest. Now, as much as I love him in North by Northwest, and love the film in general, he wasn't a huge part of it. To me, he'll always be best known as the guy who turned down the role of Spock, leaving it open to Leonard Nimoy, and then going on to Mission Impossible, and leaving Mission Impossible after three seasons, at which point his character was replaced by a new character played by Leonard Nimoy, who was no longer needed for Star Trek. He was also in a pretty good episode of Columbo in 1973. Jeffrey DeMunn plays Braunschweig. He's best known for his work in The Green Mile, The Mist, The Hitcher, and this. It's his only X-Files appearance. Blythe Danner plays Cassidy, the head of the performance review panel that Mulder and Scully report to. According to the IMDb, she's best known for Meet the Parents, The Last Kiss, Paul, and The Lucky Ones which to me indicates that the IMDb best known for popularity routines do have a bias for recent films. She was in a different but very good episode of Columbo, as well as Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, From the Earth to the Moon, and had a recurring role on Will and Grace. And she's had multiple Emmy Award nominations and wins over the years. Terry O'Quinn previously appeared as Lieutenant Brian Tillman in Aubrey, and he will return as a third character in Trust No One. He was special agent in charge Darius Michaud in this one. He also had a recurring role as Peter Watts in 41 episodes of Millennium, the Chris Carter spinoff, as well as a role as General Omar Santiago in all nine episodes of Chris Carter's Harsh Realm, which we'll talk about more as it's on the air concurrently. He's best known for his work in Lost, The Stepfather, the Rocketeer, where he played Howard Hughes, and Young Guns. Armin Müllerstahl plays Strughold, who was named for an actual Nazi scientist. He's got 139 credits to his name, including Eastern Promises, Shine, for which he got an Oscar nomination, The International, and The 13th Floor. A lot of his performances are in international works. 
We also get Lucas Black as Stevie. He's best known for his work in Sling Blade, Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift, 42, and Furious 7, according to the IMDb. He also plays Christopher LaSalle in a few episodes of NCIS and most, if not all, episodes of NCIS New Orleans. But I will always know him as Caleb Temple from American Gothic, the series that premiered in 1995, only got one season and should have had so many more. Now, Tom Woodruff Jr. plays Creature Number 1. I bring him up not because he's a well-known actor or because that was a prominent role, but because Woodruff is better known as a special effects guy than as an actor. He's currently working on Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, and according to the IMDb, he's best known for Starship Troopers, for his Oscar-winning special effects in Death Becomes Her, for Alien Resurrection, and for The Sixth Day. He also had an Oscar nomination for Alien 3, but I will always remember him from working with Alec Gillis on Goro in Mortal Kombat, which was the first animatronic creation well-balanced enough to walk under its own power. Instead of having multiple remote controls with six to eight people working together on individual muscle motors like all the previous animatronics, requiring entire teams to coordinate their efforts to make things you know, reach out or move forward, or had creations that were typically shown to be walking by dragging them on carts because it was just way too difficult to have them actually step. Goro was controlled by one remote. They could just push, move forward, and Goro would move forward. His ability to balance himself was even good enough that he could carry actors while walking. He's probably the greatest achievement of an otherwise mediocre film. You know, it came just at the end of the animatronic era, just as things were shifting over to CGI. So I don't think they got the respect and recognition they deserve for having what is probably the best quality animatronic creation in the history of Hollywood. So that's the plot summary. That's the casting crew. As you could tell, this was all myth arc start to finish. The whole thing was pushing the overall plot forward with big reveals about the nature of the black oil. Now, could a virus do this? Viruses are usually pretty simple. So either this is a much more complicated virus than I'm used to hearing about, and it doesn't necessarily belong in the category of virus, or the aliens it creates act largely on instinct. We will learn more about them going forward. But that's primarily what this is about. Now, as for the rest of the science, you know, if the black oil does what it should, then there's no reason that it can't be carried by bees. So that portion seems quite feasible. Now, when I talk about movies, I like to talk about their box office performance as well. This had a $66 million budget in the United States when it came out in 1998. The domestic gross was only $87 million, but the worldwide gross was $186 million. So in that 2 to 3 to 1 ratio, looking at the worldwide gross, which is almost triple, it would have been profitable, but not as profitable as Fox was hoping it would be. And while it did bring some people into the TV series, which is one of Fox's goals, it didn't bring in as many as they hoped. It didn't reach as many people out there who weren't already watching the show. There was a big marketing push, and all the media appearances said that, yes, this is designed to be accessible to people who had never seen an episode of The X-Files. But a lot of people who'd never seen an episode of The X-Files either didn't necessarily trust that because they'd heard 
about the ongoing plot lines and weren't really interested in getting involved in the X-Files right away. Or others that hadn't watched the show hadn't watched it not because they just didn't find it convenient and were afraid of the ongoing storylines, but just because it plain didn't interest them. So a movie based on that series didn't interest them either. So I could tell you from conversations we had in the alt.tv.xfiles news group, there were people who found the X-Files through the movie and then started catching up when the show went into syndication that fall, watching from season one on in the syndicated reruns while watching season six concurrently as it followed directly from the movie, but they just didn't show up in the numbers that Fox wanted, which is why it took such a long time to get to a second movie. It just wasn't the blockbuster Fox had hoped for, and they had hoped for a proper blockbuster, where the Hollywood definition of blockbuster is a domestic gross of 100 million or more. Coming in around 87 million, it just didn't quite hit that level. That's what we have to say about the first feature film, which we'll refer to as Fight the Future. Join us again in two weeks' time when we look at the season six premiere, The Beginning. Thank you for listening.